0: Hi listeners, welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janita DeChristofaro and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode you'll be hearing references to our old name which was Dear Dougie. So just so you don't get too confused you're listening to the right podcast and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello everyone and welcome to the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janitor Cristofaro, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is meant to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While loss is something we will all experience throughout our lives, when it occurs most of us are left not knowing what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we hope these podcast conversations lead to a better understanding of grief and also give you some ideas and inspiration for how to show up for yourself and those you care about. Today I'm joined by Holly Pruitt, a certified Life Cycle Celebrant. She works with individuals, families, organizations, and entire communities to help them create rituals and celebrations to mark meaningful transitions. She's also involved with the Death Talk Project, which organizes workshops, rituals, death cafes and a monthly movie night. Since 2013, Holly has served as the principal organizer of PDX Death Cafe, which is one of the largest death cafes across the world. As someone who works so closely with families contemplating the end of life, fostering conversations that most of us try to avoid, and helping people design rituals around death and dying, Holly has a unique window into how families include, or don't include, children and teens in this process. Welcome, Holly. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you so much, Jenna. Your work is pretty vast, and um, I'm fearful my introduction doesn't quite adequately capture what it is you actually do. So would you share a little bit about the nature of your work and what drew you to that realm?
1: I really consider myself a creative partner with the clients that I work with, whether those are, as you said, individuals or or families or community groups. And I help them to identify what purpose needs to be served and then brainstorm ways to come about doing it. And I, I think it's kind of an example of that old adage, you teach what you need to learn. I actually grew up in a family that didn't have a lot of ritual, didn't have a lot of extended family. We had to cross state lines to see any blood relatives. And when my own dad died 15 years ago, I'd been to very few funerals. And in fact, he was one of the people that said, I don't want a funeral. And my stepmother really couldn't handle one more thing. His death went unmarked by any sort of memorial or grief ritual of any kind. Having been part of his his care team during the 18 months of his terminal illness, I wanted to find some way to mark the end of that process for myself. So I turned to a friend who had a little bit of experience with ritual. I wasn't part of any organized religious community that could kind of give us a template. My friend really helped to hold the space. Through that experience, I realized that there was really a vacuum for those of us who don't necessarily have an intact cultural or religious framework to turn to when we have major milestones to mark in our lives. We're often Not doing anything at all, I found myself increasingly in the position of being able to partner with people to help them figure it out.
0: And it seems
1: that, I mean, not only
0: are there lots of people who don't have a prescribed way of of doing rituals around end of life, but also not even knowing that you could do something different you run into that?
1: Absolutely. And I, I think a lot of this really reflects the changing location of death. You know, there was, of course, a time not too long ago in our collective history when all deaths occurred at home, almost all deaths occurred at home. And in fact, the parlor in the home was where the dead were laid out. And so children would come and go as the person was sick and as they were dying. And then as the the wake or the vigil was being held or the coffin was being built, the deceased would be at the center of family life. And it really wasn't until the rise of embalming with the Civil War and the development of the modern funeral industry that that's why they're called funeral parlors um, because it provides Mm -hmm. an outsourced place. And now we have the modern living room. So there's not a place for the dead in the home because we have our living room. Many of us grow up never seeing a dying person, never seeing a dead person, um, being very uncomfortable with the idea of death in our presence. But that typically was very natural and still is in in most cultures around the world to have that be part of household life. Your mentioning of the parlor
0: reminded me of a story from from when I was a kid, my grandmother's mother died when my aunt was young. And she remembers that the parlor was on a, on the second floor. Mm-hmm. And so she would run down the stairs as fast as she could to mm-hmm. skip over seeing uh, her grandmother's body and then uh-huh. even after. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were certain things that she remembered, like certain flowers and certain colors and certain smells. Mm-hmm. But nobody talked to her, mm-hmm. even though it was such a part of mm-hmm. the day-to-day process mm-hmm. then. And, and currently in modern day, you know, We get lots of calls from families who someone has been diagnosed with an illness. You know, how do we tell the kids? Do we tell the kids? How do we involve them? Mm -hmm. What have you come across with families in terms of how much they tell kids or don't tell kids or involve them or don't involve them?
1: I find that adults, when I ask them, have you thought about the kids being involved, it's often... first time that they're thinking about it. They may have been so occupied in the caregiving role and making the arrangements in their own grief, and I think their default assumption often is, well, no, the kids aren't going to be involved. And when I raise that question, there's that initial discomfort. Well, I don't know. I don't know if they could handle it. I don't know if that's suitable. And when we begin to explore what some of the possible opportunities might be for involvement or the possible benefits of that, then there's a curiosity about it. Typically, the expectation, well, let's see. I'll talk to them. Let's see how it goes.
0: Mm, So once they have... Just the beginning of that conversation, their initial instinct is to go talk with the kids and ask them.
1: Yeah, but I think most of uh, the folks that I raise the question with have no personal experience of that. This is unknown territory. I remember when my uh, my dad's father died, when I was in grade school, uh, my dad was preparing to go and... I thought, oh, a trip, you know, can I go along? No, this isn't for kids. And then I loved to pick out my dad's neckties. This was the 70s, so I gave him a lot of garish neckties. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked out a very loud necktie and was told, that's not appropriate. The messages were all this is something that's, you know, not suitable for children, this is something subdued and there really wasn't another way for me to understand what was going on. It was kind of out of sight, out of mind. And so a lot of these adults are they don't have
0: any personal reference point mm-hmm. to go back to. If this right. was helpful for me as a kid or this they may have this mm-hmm. wasn't helpful for me, but there doesn't sound like there's that many that this was helpful for right. me. What are some of the fears
1: that adults that you talk with have about involving kids or talking with them? I think it's typically expressed as, I'm not sure they can handle it. Sometimes I think that's a reflection of the adult. I'm not sure if I can handle needing to tend to my child, because I myself have a lot going on here. I think the assumption often is that an image will be in the child's mind that will be upsetting. So much of contemporary funeral practice and bombing and so forth is about restoring the deceased body to a more lifelike kind of visage uh, with the makeup and and the hairstyled and so forth because it's thought that an image of, of illness is going to be too distressing and that we want to remember our loved ones as they were in full health. It's ironic to me because we have really this burgeoning culture around Halloween, that one time of year when all of the macabre is so celebrated and so. Sometimes when I want to look to see if there's a movie uh, that I might want to watch, it seems like all the selections are horror movies. Mm. And so it's not as though the, the ghoulish is not in our culture, but somehow the idea of seeing people that look like they're sick or, and, and look like they're dead, I think is still very, very taboo. Yeah, so almost as though there's
0: an interest in it when it's not personal. If I can watch a horror movie about it or I can play around with a really kind of scary, gory Halloween costume, but Mm -hmm. it's not a person that's in my life. In the times when families have been open to including kids or involving them in some way, what have you seen kids and teens bring to the conversation that maybe the adults wouldn't have thought to bring up or talk about.
1: I think there's often a real natural ease, actually, with relating. It, of course, depends on the age. But when you think about all the kids' burials of their goldfish, maybe a little bit more difficult if it's a cat or a dog or a pet, but I think children really naturally gravitate towards ritual and ceremony. A lot of those same instincts I see when a child is invited to participate in a memorial service, whether it's, um, you know, having a job to... To do, whether it's lighting a memory candle or handing out the programs, or that their artwork might be featured, um, or that they might actually participate in decorating a cremation casket, and that it's a way to, if the adults encourage them to express their love and their care. You know, so it's partly the story of the death. Um, is the family in shock? Um, is the family really drawing in? And the primary thing that's needed is comfort and uh, and protection, really, from the um, the difficulty of what's happened. Or is this a death that can be understood, as many pets' deaths are, as, as just being at the end of a natural life? So a lot of it is how we frame the conversations mm-hmm. with kids kids then. Right.
0: And it makes me think when, when someone does die of suicide or in a car crash, when we talk with adults about how they share that with kids to use some of the same language mm-hmm. so that the, the understanding that someone has died and their body has stopped working and we miss them in the same way. Mm-hmm. And we love them in the same way, no matter mm-hmm. how they died, seems to go a long way for kids to be able to access the, the grief and the, the missing of the person mm-hmm without maybe having to navigate through all of those more socialized mm-hmm. stigmas around
1: it. Right. Yeah, and to have something physical and concrete to do in in ritual or ceremony is that way of continuing the relationship. And instead of there just being this breach of the person completely gone, and they may be physically gone, um, but they're still a part of that child's life um, through their, their memory and their thoughts and their questions. And so to provide a way for continued interaction and that this isn't just behind a closed door, that the person who's died still has a place among them. And there's a way for them to be
0: part of that conversation rather than just seeing the adults maybe sad or scared or crying and and rushing off in some direction, Mm -hmm. leaving kids wondering, what is going Mm -hmm. on? And did I do something wrong? Mm -hmm. Is that why no one's talking to Mm -hmm. me about it? Right. Are there, you know, without going into people's confidential stories about things, but are there ways you've seen people really personalize their,
1: the end of life rituals? Well, I'm thinking of um, uh, a woman who, died and was being uh, buried in a green burial uh, here in a local cemetery. And so this was going to be quick just a few days after her death and she'd been sick for quite some time she was a relatively young woman um, and so she had young kids in her life not her own but um, you know nieces and nephews and people that really looked up to her and that had seen her body really changing but none of them had actually ever witnessed a burial in fact most of the adults had never witnessed a burial either it had happened out of sight or um, more typically there's a cremation so this was going to be something really new to actually gather around a grave site the uh, cemetery transported her body in just a very simple white van and so we invited the kids to decorate the van Um, One of the moms brought crepe paper streamers, Mm. and um, we invited them to think about what their, you know, this beloved friend of theirs, adult friend of theirs, would have liked. You know, she wouldn't have liked just a plain white van. She wanted people to make a fuss over her. And so they decorated the van. And then a few months later, there was a very large memorial service um, that we'd had more time to prepare. And all of the children were invited to come up front and to do a candle lighting. We invited them to bring into their mind a... favorite memory um, Mm -hmm. of this woman and to hold that memory close as they lit the candle. I think it was a a really beautiful emotional opening for the adults there as well, because it was very stirring to see all those children gathered and to see their solemnity and their reverence. The adults being able to witness that, I think were able to have a bit of emotional opening that they might not have had if they were just listening to speakers and a little bit more in their heads.
0: I can imagine being able to tap into a whole different arena of emotion, Mm -hmm. seeing you know, 10 kids up
1: on stage
0: thinking of memories and lighting candles in honor of this person.
1: One of the most moving things I ever saw was another a young adult who um, died this time. It was a sudden death in a motorcycle accident. He was a biker, and his whole community were motorcycle enthusiasts, and they turned out in force for his burial. And a lot of them had kids, and he had a niece and nephew. And many of them showed up with those tattoo sleeves. <laughs> The kids did. Fake tattoo sleeves, right? <laughs> the adults had real tattoo sleeves, ink on their arms, but the kids, in his honor, were wearing cloth tattoo sleeves. And uh, this also was a natural burial, and the family had chosen to close the grave themselves. And this is something that most people today have very little of experience of. It might be a symbolic shovel full or a handful of dirt, but then the rest is left to the grounds maintenance crew after the family leaves. Well, the kind of honor guard of biker buddies were determined that they were going to put every shovel full of earth there. And so the parents were seated on the sod that had been laid to the side, and they saw their son's whole community. Several of the most active shovelers were younger kids. They really took it seriously. And I think that's likely a memory of being useful and of service and in community that will stay with them for quite some time. And so much of, you know, when we talk
0: with kids of that grief is something you carry in your body as an energy Mm -hmm. and that moving your body can sometimes be a really helpful thing Mm to metabolize that energy or transform it in some way. And so here these kids were just naturally inclined to do that.
1: Right. Well, that reminds me of one of the most recent memorial services that I did where um, the grandchildren, um, uh, grade school age of the woman who had died. Um, again, the mom wasn't too sure whether they'd want to participate but she asked them and they did agree that they'd like to come up and light a candle at the beginning but one of the wonderful things that people were invited to participate in was writing a favorite memory or a blessing on leaf-shaped piece of paper and those were then hung on a memory tree that had beautiful fairy lights in it. The young granddaughter and some of her friends who'd showed up took on handing out those leaves to everybody as they arrived. It involved them in being part of that kind of greeting process and gave them a job to do. The woman who was being honored was a, a crazy dancer. She was just known for always turning everything into a dance party. Even in the midst of people's sadness, they were kind of determined that they were going to close this out uh, with a conga line. <laughs> and so this, again, was something that in Just the Right Song went on, that every single kid... Um, got in that conga line, and the shy adults were kind of shamed into <laughs> participation um, because the, uh, you know, the lead of the kids um, was pretty irresistible. Mm-hmm. As you're talking about terms like green burial and closing the, you say
0: closing the grave. Yes. Do you have suggestions for maybe listeners out there who struggle with, how do I even explain this to kids? Like, what is a green burial? How do I explain cremation?
1: How do I explain caskets in language that kids can understand? Yeah, great questions. I think that as you had begun earlier to talk about, um, you know, the, the body not working anymore, we need to figure out a new place for the body to be. Cremating the body can be, I think, compared to when the body is going to take another form. And often maybe looking to the garden metaphor is helpful and thinking about um, compost, if there's compost in the house that you know our bodies don't last forever. Cremation is a process that helps the body break down and turn back into dust and into ash that can go into the ground and can help fertilize new life that's going to come and that burying a body in the ground is about returning it to the earth. Because our bodies are made up of all of the same minerals and chemicals that come from the earth. Again, ideally, there's maybe been experience with with burying a pet and or visiting a cemetery. Then they have an understanding that there are things that we do with bodies. So almost like a educational
0: building of vocabulary and an understanding of mm-hmm. the images and the processes that go along with mm-hmm. death and
1: dying. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking of one another term home funeral that refers to um, now many times with hospice care people are dying at home it's still pretty common for as soon as the death occurs to call the funeral home and off the body goes but historic practice is that the body would be kept at home and bathed by the family and visited and sang over prayed over stories told over that kind of vigil or or wake and there are families that are um, reclaiming that practice Mm -hmm. And finding that rather than one moment the person is alive and the next moment they're dead and they're gone, that the presence of death inside the home, even if the person has died outside the home, the body can be brought back home, that it allows for a more natural time frame about um, incorporating the reality of the death and transitioning uh, the relationship. So I think of one home funeral where the man who died had a newborn grandson. And that little baby was rocked and nursed and um, fussed over and sang to for 24 hours in the presence of um, his deceased grandfather. Mm -hmm. Now, he may not have a conscious memory of that, but there are photos of that. There's video of that. Um, When you asked what a child can bring to the process, again, he was pre-verbal, but that cycle of life being so palpable, the family was heartbroken that, the grandfather would not have more days with the grandson, that the grandson wouldn't have an active memory of his grandfather. But absent that, there's now a family story of the time that they spent together Mm. um, in each other's presence. Some young adults that I know where there was a sudden death of the father and the Paramedics, you know said we have to take him to the funeral home. They researched afterwards because it felt way too abrupt to them, and they knew that they they learned that they did have the right to bring their father's body back home. Actually, and they spent two or three days um, in a vigil with people visiting. And what they said is actually almost everybody who came and spent time in prayer and song and story weeping together, adorning uh, his body, adorning the cremation casket that he'd be taken out in. They were almost all under 30. They said pretty much all of the older relatives in the family just thought it was weird. But when the funeral home came back to pick his body up, to take him for cremation, those Funeral home workers were so affected by seeing how well cared for and how well celebrated and how mourned this man had been, they said, wow, I hope somebody does that for me when I die. It can have a really powerful effect on a community and a family. If you just even have a glimpse of a family-directed death care process, it ignites the imagination and people realize, wow, we can do this. The younger people and the kids are often the ones that find it the most natural. It makes me wonder about
0: doing a little research ahead of time Mm -hmm. and thinking through what are my options and planning and and giving people those ideas. This is something I would like when i'm when i die you don't yeah. have to do it
1: cuz you need to right. do what you're comfortable with but right. at least opening up the the possibility yeah even with cremation, for example, that seems more hands-off, we're not going to be able to build our own funeral pyres, it is possible to do what's called a witness cremation, which is to be physically present in the facility when the cremation occurs, and actually even to push the button that has mm. the body go into the retort, is what they call the, the furnace. And there are some cultures where that's considered an obligation of the offspring um, to provide that kind of stewardship. I'll talk to families to say, do you think you might want that? And And oftentimes they'll say, no, I don't need to do that. But when it comes down to it, something's been awakened in them just by considering the possibility. And I'm thinking of two um, young adults whose dad had died um, and they had said, no, I don't think so. But then the daughter said, you know, actually, I do want to be there. And then her brother said, well, if you're going to be there, then I want to be there with you. (laughs) And then um, we went back and we were talking with a crematory operator. How often do you have families, you know, are actually here? He said, you know, maybe once or twice a month. And then he talked about how it was actually kind of sad for him. Because here he's the one who is in that role of that final act of presence with the physical body. And then he, he did say to them, you know, you could... You could push the button. And even though she hadn't anticipated she'd wanted to, the daughter placed her hand over the button, and then her brother placed his hand over her. And again, I think that's um, a moment that will be very powerful for them. Um, and they're not going to have regrets later, thinking, could we, should we have done more? Yeah, which reminds me of what, you know, one of the things that we always share with families who are kind of
0: worrying, should we involve kids, should we not involve kids? And most often what I've heard from kids is, I wish I hadn't done that, but I'm really glad I got to be the one that decided that. So mm. they may actually have their own mm-hmm. personal regret, but they mm-hmm. that seems lighter to carry mm-hmm. than being angry that they never had the opportunity. Right. So, so I just want to thank you, Holly, for all the work that you are doing in our community. And I imagine it is spreading far beyond Portland of providing people with those with that permission to be creative and personal in how they attend to end of life for the people that they love and and thinking about their own end of life too.
1: Well, thanks. And I just want to thank all the families I've had the opportunity to work with whose stories I've been able to share. And I'm inspired by every one of them. And they're incredibly generous to encourage the sharing of their stories so that other people can have a greater sense of the possibilities for themselves
0: and listeners out there um, i will be linking to holly's many websites that she is connected with in our show notes so please uh, look into work she's doing there may be a death cafe community close to where you live and if not you can probably contact holly and she can help you find someone who may do what she does in, in your own home community so thank you so much holly really enjoyed talking with you today thank you janna i enjoyed it too